Hello, I'm Dana Brooks of Facing Brooks Law Offices, and you are back for another edition of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plan. Dana Brooks of Facing Brooks Law Offices, and you are back with us for another episode of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plant. We are so excited today. I've got this guest that I have been so excited and turned on about since I met her several months ago in New Orleans. We've got Julia Metz, y'all. She is a, oh my goodness, just like a powerhouse trial lawyer. In fact, she teaches trial lawyers how to be powerhouse trial lawyers. So lots to learn from that. Get all your questions from watching all those TV shows uh, and and respond to us. We'll read them on uh, or you can reach out to us, text me, whatever. But you'll want to hear from her on everything. She's a very cool, cool, cool chick. She's a lawyer. She is a parent and an active parent. You know, one of these people who can seemingly do everything, which we're all trying to do, but she's pulling it off. So she'll give us the secret sauce on how to do that. So first of all, welcome, welcome, Julia. And then we'll go around and uh, meet our panel who's joining us today. But welcome, Julia Metz, lawyer extraordinaire. Hey, happy to be here today. So like I I told you earlier, I apologize for this setup. I'm in a a pediatric office in uh, Advent Medical Center because this is the place I could found on my drive back up from Palm Beach to Pensacola because we got stuck in traffic. So uh, I think Dana, you and I were talking about yesterday about uh, making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. And so I, I had Gage with me and he was like, well, what are we going to do? Where are we going to do that? I was like, we're just going to find a spot. Like we're just, we're just going to find solutions to some problems. That's all we're going to do today. <laughs> See, that's how great it is. You know, you're bringing this child around who's seeing you go, Hmm, I can't get where I need to be. I got to be on this uh, phone call. I need to find a place. Carrie Roan, this woman just walked right into a medical office and said, you got an office I can use. I need an hour to do a podcast. Do you love that? Carrie also I love it. has done medical I mean, Julia, I'm such a fangirl from when yeah. I met you in New Orleans. I'm such a fangirl. I don't even want to talk. I just want to listen to you talk the whole time so I can like admire you. But yeah, I mean, yeah. what you're saying about doing right now is just what we all do. Like you just got to, you know, nowadays do a deposition from your car in the parking lot if that's what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what we're all doing. You know, we yeah. got to make it work, but women are so resilient and we're so able to do that. So I'm so proud of us to see us all doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so glad your child is seeing you do it. Yeah. Just, Hey, I'm making it happen. This is happening. Yes. Betsy Brown. Betsy Brown is in the house. Hey, hey, Betsy, my law partner. Um, you also were at the society of women trial lawyers, uh, annual meeting in new Orleans and you got to see Julia. I did. And it's so great to see you again, Julia. Thanks for being our guest. Um, I'm also, well, I'm from Pensacola. I don't know if that's where you're originally from, but that's where I was born and raised. So um, I think it's cool that you, you, uh, you work there now. So maybe we can chat about that later. Yeah. 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 You got some. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were both born and raised there. So spoiler alert, I'm actually moving back to St. Pete. Okay. Still Florida. We'll still Florida. Yeah. Oh. Um, still doing lots of, of trial work with trial school and mass torch made perfect and, and all of those things. Um, but getting out of lower Alabama into, um, you know, a diverse yeah, environment. I do, <laughs> I do know. Yeah. But we have to talk about, where, <laughs> we have to talk about where Julia's really from because she's from my neck of the woods. You know, I don't, Julia, I don't know if you remember, but I'm from Fort okay. Myers. Where she, Perry, yeah. we were trying to claim her, but okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I get her. Go she's on. All mine. Yeah. You're from Houston, right? Which is yeah. like sugarcane country, you know, the Okeechobee. Um, I mean, there's just nothing like it in the state of Florida. So 
There's not. And, um, you know, it's, uh, when I think about growing up down there and and things like that, it is a, it's a blessing and a curse. Right. Um, but you find all the blessings in it. Like we learned incredible resiliency and grit, right? My father was a commercial fisherman. So I got my first boat when I was eight or nine and it was just like, Hey, here's a a VHF radio. We're going to call in and check on you in the morning to make sure you're still alive if you're out on the lake. So we would go camp on the lake and then just radio into the fish house in, in the morning. Um, and so you just found ways to adapt and um, just be kids. I think that that was the coolest part about it. The part about it that was really hard was that there was no one like me. There was no one who was openly gay. There was no one who was, and I was a little kid that they didn't know what to do with, right? They knew they liked me. They knew I had personality, but they didn't know what was wrong with me. Yeah, but they very much, that. you know, so yeah. But yeah. you, I think the, the secret to life is that is number one, understanding that the people did to us or did with us the best that they thought that they could do in the moment. Um, I've shared with you guys, like my experiences with my mom about wanting me to conform. And, and that comes from a place as a woman of her wanting me to be safe. Right. I just have no interest in safety anymore. Like we're just going to, we're going to blow it up until the world is what we need it to be, yeah. you know, in, in a healthy way. But, the things that she was afraid of happening to me, I understood why, because she was a woman who went through the world and things happened to her. Um, and, and when we can find the lessons out of those and, and just kind of flip the scripts in our brains, we just were unstoppable. I, I, women are absolutely unstoppable. So. Well, you, you, you're preaching to the choir here. I don't know if you know about <laughs> the makeup of our farm, but we're um, good night of living. I haven't done the math lately. Um, we got a lot of women lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> We're, mm-hmm. we're 75% women owned, uh, which is, you know, unheard of, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great time to be alive. I want to ask you a couple of things. I want you to, to cover just a couple of things that I'm going to let you run with. I want you to tell us what mass torts are and, okay, and sure. why that's important, why regulation alone doesn't keep people safe and why we need people like you and people like us who, uh, hold people to account for the harm that they cause instead of just putting profits over, people and uh, safety. I want you to talk about that, but I want to ask you why you don't care about safety anymore. What informed that decision? And then I want to ask you how gender affects your life professionally and personally. Sure. So let's go, um, let's go first to mass torts. So the, the thing for me about mass torts, and, and this is, I was um, a prosecutor for 13, 14 years, right? So my entire, the the first part of my career was about going after the bad guys, right? And and making sure that we got justice. And that means, you know, sometimes no information is just as much justice as as a a life conviction. Um, But going after the the bad people for the right reasons. And I looked at plaintiff's lawyers as um, like ambulance chasers, right? Because that's what the lobbyists tell us to do. That's what the people, and when you grow up in farming communities, like we don't trust big money lawyers, right? You just don't like with their fancy cars and, and those things. Um, and I didn't have an appreciation for what was happening. Uh, and then I went back and started teaching at Stetson and I started thinking really hard about um, being broad enough in my skill set to be able to reach students who wanted to go a civil track both ways, right? So plaintiff or defense or, or whatever they, they wanted to do. And then I started, you know, researching and, and thinking about it and looking at it. And to me, it was this idea that um, we have billion dollar corporations 
that are not doing the things that, that they should be doing. And take opioids, for example, the DEA didn't stop them, right? The FDA didn't stop them. No right. governmental entity or body stopped them. Right. Trial lawyers stopped them. That's why you're not running around in an exploding pinto anymore. You can think of ambulance chasing trial lawyer. <laughs> right. And, and it's this, people have to start really thinking long and hard about these societal norms that we think about how we get ahead. And it's, it's just been played upon us. So we don't look at the fact that in order to take down the opioid manufacturers or the um, massive, you know, Monsanto's and, and Bayer and all of these gigantic corporations that you have to have tremendous amounts of money. Yeah. Right. And, and you have to, um, to have attorneys willing to, to do this kind of work to hold them accountable because the government simply isn't doing it and they're not doing uh-huh. enough of it. No. Um, so you have to have mass torts. And, and I think mass tort lawyers, you know, can do a, a better job. I think all lawyers can of, of not falling into the stereotypes. And number one, not being offended by the stereotypes. Like when, when I had friends tell me like, Oh, like you're a trader, you switch sides. Like you're just chasing money. Now I just asked them like, well, what about what I've done makes you think that my characters change so much. Right. And they're like, oh, Julia, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm like, no, no, because that's not a joke. That's not funny. Like, what makes you think that? So then we can have a broader conversation about why they have the preconceived notions that they do. And it's it's one person in one time in one moment, but it makes a difference because that changes the conversation that they have with their children at home about lawyers. So instead of being angry with with people for feeling this way, I I think we just take a minute, try to understand it educate them when we can so that they'll educate their children and we change the momentum around that. But you have to have mass tort lawyers coming together, pulling their resources to take down these giant corporations because the government does not hold them accountable. Exactly. You know, that's, you know, so many people think we're to the left and we're very liberal and we want huge, enormous government, things like that. And I'm like, well, if your government were keeping you safe, I wouldn't have a job. So mm-hmm. the regulations are not doing it. What they do do is a well, I'm getting on a soapbox, it's a form of socialism because it's a lot of government jobs to give people a nice way to make a living. But anyway, um, Carrie, what did you think when you heard what Julia was saying about what your friends say about you're a traitor? Well, it reminded me of like the first couple of weeks at my office because Julia, I did defense work for 16 yeah. years before I came here. And I know Betsy can chime in on this too because Betsy, we, we recruited Betsy over from a defense firm too, but it like the way that people treated me was shocking. They were all like, I was like, yeah, like I was doing something wrong. And I was like, are you kidding me? And the, it's not just the, it, it was the condescension and yeah. the looking down their nose at me. Like I'm just a filthy piece. Of, and I was just on their side like two weeks ago. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, who do you think keeps you employed? Because if it wasn't <laughs> for plaintiff's lawyers, there would be no defense bar. So right. you're, you're looking down at me, like we're you, in a you would be doing loan closing, sir. You would be right. right. And, will, sir. and Dana told me real quick and Dana's like, you just can't sweat what they're thinking about you. You cannot sweat it. You're going to be so successful. You're going to be so happy in your job that you're, that you're fulfilled and you're helping people. And that happened almost immediately. So, and I hope that Betsy's kind of going through that same transition where she feels personally fulfilled by helping people because that overcomes and overshadows anybody looking down their nose at me anymore. It really does. Betsy, what do you think about that? Well, I, Dana, you and I were just talking about this, how, um, I got a a really sweet note from a client and I shared it with Dana and I was like, this, this warms my cold, dead lawyer heart. (laughs) 
because it was a, a message of thank you for looking out for me. Thanks for helping me come back stronger. I really appreciate you type thing. And I never got that before. That's for sure. But, uh, <laughs> what you didn't get that in the defense not, <laughs> believe it or not, but, you know it's like the better I did my job the worse they treated me <laughs> yeah the more they cut your bills the more you the more uh, trials you win the more they cut off your bills yeah <laughs> right so um but yeah I I do get that feeling I get that sense from some people but I will say that by and large uh, folks have been supportive of me even my former defense colleagues so it hasn't been too bad good Good. I'm glad yeah. to- All right, Julia, let's get to our second question, which is why do you disregard safety now? Um, <laughs> because it's not safe. It's the illusion of safety you disregard. It is, right? And, and we conform out of habit and we seek safety um, in a way that, that creates like habits of avoidance and, and things like that. And we lose ourselves in the process, right? So in, and when we lose ourselves in the process, we don't function um, well, you know? And I, I think anytime that we are walking in line with our values and our calling, then it makes our decision-making very easy. And um, we find great comfort in that. So I'm no longer interested in, in the safety of societal norms. I'm just not. Yeah. And I think societal norms kill people. Uh, it breeds silence. Look at the number of, of sexual assault victims who um, don't say anything at all. Like, I mean, I, I did the podcast with Luke back in November. It was released, um, I think, like last week. And then the number of people who heard it and then immediately reached out to me and said, I didn't know it had happened to you. And, and these are people who are older than I am. And they were like, well, you know, who was it? And I'm like, here are the names, <laughs> right? They're like, oh my God, it was the same people. And I think just realizing like when we conform to societal norms, sometimes it's, it, we are playing it safe for the abusers. We are playing it safe for the patriarchy. We are playing it safe for the people in power. Yeah. When we walk in, in the path of our calling and we say, I seek safety in me and, and walking in line with my values and not in making you feel comfortable. It's, it's just so freeing. Like I don't, I don't need your approval on, on how I wear my hair. I don't need your approval on, you know, do I had a judge keep telling me one time I needed to wear lapel pins because like what, no, a brooch, like, like women wear brooches. And I was like, well, you won't let me wear one that sells guilty. So I'm not wearing it. Since you've been alive, brooches have been hip happening. Right. I mean, that's, that's That's what he said. Um, No brooch, mister. No brooch, master. That's not true. You you were to wear that information, judge. Yeah, he wanted me to wear a brooch in trial, and I said, "If you'll let me wear one that says guilty, I'll do it." Uh-uh. Right? No. So I, I mean, I, just, I can borrow some of your brooches. Who is this clown? A fucking brooch. Okay, I do want to ask you a couple of things. Sure. Okay. Um, we cross promote here, and uh, I was telling you, I, I saw you at a conference, and um, you came on. It was a Sunday morning, and you were the first one, and I'm like, ah, we are in church. <laughs> this chick brought it it was awesome uh and, and uh, sarah williams uh one of our colleagues out of birmingham yeah. firm, she came after you and i'm like okay girl she brought it and then i was like oh my god this is the best conference i've ever been to in my life i mean it was just such a wonderful thing but i listened to your podcast we have um someone who's in our orbit our, uh, all of us personal injury lawyers he's very well respected luke russell I love him. Fantastic podcast called Lawfully Good. 
And you were, I think, the first guest of his third season. And I've listened to your podcast. And I know uh, Betsy's caught it. Greg, our producer's caught it. And man, it was good. Now, he puts 40 hours of editing into his. And we're doing this on the fly. So <laughs> he did work some magic here, lady. <laughs> but no, you were just so fantastic. Um, but you talked about some things that are uh, deeply personal and really kind of exposed you, opened you up. And whenever I talked to you about what I wanted to cover here today, I said, lady, oh my God, we could take any one of those 10 segments and spend an hour on it. So let's do you whatever you want to talk about. And I was so surprised that your response today was that, you know, talking to Luke's the first time I even talked about some of that stuff. Yeah. When I went to New Orleans, that was only the second time. And I'm wow. sitting here in my, you know, bleach blonde head just blew off. Tell me, tell, say more about that. What in the world made you just say, okay, I got a microphone in my hand and who knows who in the universe is going to hear this, but I'm going to tell this story for the first time. What's your story? Um, and did you tell it? The, how we got there with, with Luke was, um, I was tired. I think emotionally um, and soulfully exhausted with, with this idea of, you know, people keep thinking women can do everything and we can be everything to everyone and we can do, um, and, and they can just keep piling on us and we're supposed to just keep putting up with it. And so part of talking to Luke about um, everything that had happened for, for me was so that the generation coming behind us and, and the other women who were trying to appease everyone and killing themselves in the process can, can stop, right, a, a little bit. And that they know that the things that have happened to us, we didn't choose but we do get to decide what, what we do with them. And, and I am adamant about, you know, trying to save lives. I, I believe tremendously that, um, especially for the, the LGBTQ community and um, people of color and any minority, the loneliness that, that we all feel sometimes and, and the targeted attacks and, and things like that. If we don't talk about it, then who's going to? And um, I, I just remember I've done a lot of volunteer work over the years and I've worked with a lot of kids and, and they kept saying, you made a difference to me, right? I'll get a letter in the mail five years later. Like, you know, you, I remember you from this field trip that you chaperoned this one time and, and talking to Luke, it, it just felt right. It, it felt like, okay, right. So let's, let's talk about how I got to where I am and why people, um, why my confidence level is where it is um, and why I advocate for others to, to find their voice as well. Now, that was the first time maybe you shared that very deeply uh, personal story about losing someone so close to you. Um, but somebody tells me you've lived who you are, you've lived your truth mm -hmm. for a while now. Am I wrong in that? And just tell me about your journey of how you decided Julia Metz is just fine the way she is. That's a great title of a book, isn't it? <laughs> Joy Metz is just fine the way she is, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that um, you talked about that a little bit in New Orleans, but like with your childhood and your mom. And I yeah. just found that so profound that you knew at a very early age who you were and how you wanted to be. I knew elementary school. Like, like there was never a doubt in my mind, like, like this. I'm like, yeah, no. I'm like, I'm not attracted. Like, like no, like I'm not, I'm not going to have a husband. And I, I remember even like, I, because I wasn't um, really, really maternal. I remember giving my mom a, um, a card one time that said like the best you're going to get is, is uh, grand dogs because I'm not having kids. 
Um, so like, I, I always knew that I was different. I, I felt different. Um, and here's the, the thing where uh, I could have done it better for myself and that I was very good at shifting back and forth between personalities. I knew who I needed to be in the moment to get what I needed out of that room. And there were times that I did it for my own game, but then there were also times that I did it just so I felt safe so I could control the room a little bit. Right. So if I'm going to go in, I'm going to be funny. Like I am naturally an introverted human being. So if I am controlling the conversation in the room, it's because I don't feel safe and, and I need to, I need to dictate where this goes. I need to control where this goes. Right. Um, but my journey in being fully who I am was, uh, it happened sometime after, after Julie died. Um, because I, is if you don't mind. Oh, I'm sorry. So, uh, Julie is my, my very first partner ever. We met while we were in college at Mississippi college. She was two years older than I am. Um, smartest human I've ever met, kindest human I've ever met. Right. So she's the Sunday school teacher type. Um, and, uh, and at that point I was, um, probably like a little chippish on my shoulder. Right. My whole goal in life was to conquer people and to crush their little spirits. Um, and here comes this, like <laughs> my mom used to, at that time, she would, she would call me on the phone. She was like, am I talking to Julia today or Jerry? Because I do not want to talk to your father. <laughs> so, so, and he was an airborne ranger. Right. So it was, um, I just thought that this is what we do. Like we crush and we win and we crush and we win. And, and then I meet Julie and I'm like, we don't, right. Like we love humans and we are gentle and we are kind and, it was just such an incredible transformation and it uh, renewed my faith in, in Christ and in my ability to be a gay Christian because she walked her faith so well. Um, I didn't have to ask what she believed. She lived it. And so we were together for um, 10 years, but never openly together. Right. We're a classic Southern Baptist roommates. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I remember, so she struggled so much with it. Um, there were times that at night I would sleep on the floor, um, next to her bed, holding her hand because she couldn't, she couldn't handle the shame of us being in the same bed. Right. And and so it would come in waves of when she could and when she couldn't. And then, um, things like I got custody of my niece and nephew and we were raising them together and lots of things kind of just happened. And her depression got worse and worse and worse and um, ultimately resulted in uh, suicide. And one of the struggles going through that was that, you know, she's like, I'm, I'm going to tell my family that I'm not gay. I just love you and I can't lose you. So they have to accept that. And I was like, no, because that's not true. And I told her, I, I remember one of our last conversations, I was like, it, it's better to lose me than lose you. Right. Like, don't don't compromise on this. Like if this is who you are, like, don't like you are loved and God loves you and everyone loves you. Like you're Julie. <laughs> um, and that was that. And, and I just, I remember reassuring her if, if it's meant to be, I'll be here and we will always find each other, but like, this isn't healthy right now. Um, and within like maybe less than a week of that conversation, she was dead. Oh. So um, after that, um, I just, began living more openly, right? I, I never asked permission. Like I didn't tell my parents I was gay. I just brought a girl home. I'm like, hate it or love it, Lois, here we go. Right, really like, I don't, <laughs> what are you gonna do? I'm like, my dad's response was classic male response. He, um, 
they're all attractive and, and educated and smart women. So he's like, way to go, little Mets. Wait, you know, <laughs> I'm like, you're such, you're such an ass. <laughs> you know, so, right. Like, it's I like, love he, that though. I love that though. Way to go, like, little Mets. <laughs> right. Makes the gay chauvinist. Um, so that was, you, you know. my women together in my dream. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but there wasn't, and I just, I started living more openly it, yeah. without asking for permission or, um, or caring about what, what people thought. Right. Um, but the woman that I was with at the time, um, had political ambitions, wanted to be a judge and things like that, and was very much less comfortable being open. And that, that's one of the things that, that we disagreed on tremendously because we lived in a small town. And, and I just remember thinking about all the kids out there who needed to see that powerful women, um, could be gay, right? Or powerful men could be gay and be families and be okay. And, and you don't have to shame yourselves to death. Like shame and silence um, drives drives us to suicide. And, and I just wanted to do whatever I could to stop that. So I, I started living much more openly and much more honestly. How long ago did you lose Julie? Hmm. So um, June 25th, 2010. Still very, so, still very fresh for you. I can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so, right? And I, I don't run from it. I am like I'm. I'm good with it. If it, when you have the opportunity to to spend time with someone as, as incredible as I've had the opportunity to spend time with with those types of people, it's just like I miss her tremendously. I sometimes am almost happy that that she's not in this world currently where we are. Um, but I, I wouldn't trade the experience. I mean, I just. That's lovely. That's a very lovely way to think about that. Betsy, I want to come back to you before I uh, go back for my last wrap up, which is uh, I want to know how gender impacts, how Julia allows gender to impact her life, how she experiences it. But I don't want to hog all the time. Um, <laughs> what do you think? Well, it just really resonated with me, um, with Julia talking about how representation matters, because it absolutely does. And so that, you know, that was a fight worth fighting because you did provide that representation. And that was something worth standing up for. So kids who come up in small towns and in the South and um, religious communities can see it's not just me. There's not something wrong with me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I think of is privilege, you know, whatever you were describing some of that just now I thought to myself I don't ever have to do that mm -hmm. I don't have to hide who I am I don't have to wonder about um you know what somebody thinks about what I look like or my clothing choices or who I hang out with I don't have to maintain some sort of um you know fraud about who my roommate is and that sort of thing um, so many of us enjoy privileges like that, that we just don't ever stop and think about. Um, and I, and I like to do that. Um, the biggest one for me there, Dana, was the, the privilege of grief. I, yeah. I didn't get to grieve what should have been my wife. You're right. I, I mean, obviously I had to bury a friend and I had to ask permission to go in the hospital to see her because we weren't 
together and um, they don't have to let me back. Right. So like, luckily I'm likable, I guess. Right. And they let me back (laughs) and we would carry notes in our pockets or our wallets or, you know, whatever was on us with um, the others identifying information so that if if something happened, we could tell them to look here. It it tells you that, that I'm allowed to come back and see her, but I would have so many people come up to me and be like, Oh, you lost your best friend. And I'm like, you have no idea. You have no idea what I've lost. Right. So I, I didn't just miss the opportunity to have a full and honest experience, but I also missed the opportunity to grieve her um, for what she was to me. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so important to me that when I talk about like loving when it's hard, it's because that's one of the things that that she taught me to do Um, and about seeing the best in people and and in their motives and in their intentions um, to keep ourselves you know, more honest and, and more hopeful, um, but not being able to grieve her the way that I, I wanted to, or felt like I, I needed to, um, has again, you turn it into a positive and that's cool because I'm just going to keep her alive, right? I'm going to keep her alive by, by doing all these things. Um, you never get the closure you're entitled to. So it kind of keeps it alive. So I guess in some way that's, you know, a universal correction. I don't know. Mm-hmm looking for something to make sense from that. Uh, I tell you what's uh, hurtful though, is just hearing how much shame impacted her life and how much we, how much we give control Mm -hmm. of our happiness and what we genuinely believe about ourselves to anybody other than ourselves. It doesn't make any sense. And I know because someone raises you and gives birth to you and you come from families of origin and you're taught certain beliefs you know, you, you would have a certain, you know, discontent about rejecting those beliefs or going in a different direction, but that's different than just shame, shame for no other reason than to just make you feel like shit about just who you are, uh, not choices that you've made, just who you are and what you genuinely feel and believe about yourself and the world around you. Um, I just fucking hate shame. Yeah. And, and they're good reason though, right? I mean, look at what we do to women. And right. So, so we talked about it earlier, you know, whenever you started, it was like the ability to balance work and mom life and, and all those things, because if we don't, and we don't look like we're doing it all, they're going to shame us to death anyway. Shit and then shit we, shit yeah. And, and then it's taught us to shame, shame ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just like, like, no, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in beating myself up any more than I already have my entire life. Right. Like, no, I'm interested in beating you back now. Yeah. Yeah. What do you get for it? What do you get? for constantly failing to meet other people's expectations. Mm-hmm. I just don't get how that enriches your life, but women, especially we do it all the time. I think a lot of people do, but especially women, but that kind of brings you back to the gender question, but I want to circle back, uh, Carrie, now that we're talking and thoughts, what, what would you like to talk to Julia about or hear from her? Well, so I have a question and I, I don't mean to go and step over the line, but so, you know, the country's changed so much in the past, maybe eight years, you know, maybe starting with the tea party kind of getting very, very right Christian wing, you know, and it's really shifted. Right. And so it's interesting to hear that you can still combine Christianity with being gay, because to me, it seems like, and I grew up Catholic. So I went to Catholic school my whole life in Fort Myers and was raised with a lot of traditions and all, but I was never raised to not love somebody and not treat them with kindness and respect and allow people to be who they are. 
But I've seen a lot of change in the country over the past eight or nine years, 10 years, maybe. And with a lot of, like I said, with a lot of extreme right wing, a lot of extreme Christianity beliefs. So I'm wondering, like, how you how you found a comfortable place in Christianity where you don't feel judged or you feel comfortable or you feel safe or, or you know. That's kind of a garbled question, but I hope you get my drift. <laughs> yeah, I do, right? And I think it's recognizing that, that number one, like your, your faith is a personal relationship with your maker, right? So I'm not going to allow the, you know, ultra conservative Southern Baptist church down the road to tell me about my relationship with God, right? Because they're doing the same thing everybody else is doing it. They're interpreting scripture that's been interpreted in 45 different languages at different times by different people. It's, it's literature. It's, it's interpretive. Right. And, and they're wanting to tell me what to, to think about. And like, well, did you actually read it in Hebrew? Because if you didn't know, oh, man, I don't know that we need to chat. Um, so I don't seem prepared for this meeting. Right. So number one, I am not going to let the church and, and especially people who are not walking in, in alignment with, with their faith and values as they should be to tell me what my relationship with my maker is. I'm just, I'm, I will not give them that power anymore. I, I did it for a long time. Julie did it for a long time. Others have done it for a long time and we end up tormenting ourselves and traumatized. And I'm just not like, this is a personal relationship. And then I, I will find and seek community um, that, that support me. And, and what I mean by support me is not like, Hey, go do whatever you want in life and it'll be great. But people who are loving and kind and also hold us accountable for the times that we're stepping outside of our values. Like, hey, Julia, you're a super great person, but you are intense today and pretty much an ass. So maybe chill it a little bit, you know? Um, we all need those people. Finding that community. And for me, it's, it's been the Methodist church, right? Um, and I know that they're split and everything that, that they're going through is, is hard right now. But um, I found that to be, um, and it was Adam Hamilton's teachings and writings. And then when COVID hit, his church was online. So I could tune in and watch. And it was kind of like a, a reconnection for me after a very long time of being um, frustrated and angry with religion because people weaponize religion against others. And it's, it's not just like the LGBTQ community. It's against women, right? How many churches have, have scandals where the women have been abused and beat and hurt and they're telling them to stay? The sexual abuse that they're covering up, right? The... Um, Southern Baptist Convention, you know, and, and those churches and things like that being formed um, to combat blacks coming in, right? Like a ways to stop um, integration. So I, I don't look to the church the way that we all think of it um, to, to restore my, my relationship with, with God. I, I look to church like-minded people for community, mm-hmm. but I, I work on, on my relationship personally. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. I know that's a highly personal kind of question, but I was just interested in that. So I appreciate that. Sure. You you know, Julia, whenever I hear you speak, this phrase comes to mind. Um, This woman has done her work. You know, we hear that all the time. Do your work. I don't know if Brene Brown started that, but you talk about, oh, well, you know, you've got to do your work. Well, they've done a lot of work. They've done their work. Um, You personify that term. You, you seem very um, self-effacing is the way I would describe it. Um, and I think you've talked a couple of times about the power of just saying something out loud. And I want to uh, get into that a little bit more, like just the power of getting something outside of you 
Mm -hmm. So many things that make us anxious are the things that our internal uh, dialogue is telling us, uh, Dana, you need to do this. You didn't do this. You got to do this. Dana, you need to do it. They're counting on you. This didn't happen. Da, da, da. And then, or you let this person down. You should have done this. You should have stayed. You should have done this. You said, whatever. And then if you ever actually just say that out loud, and it could literally be something as casual as saying it to your friends out on the boat at a cocktail party, just actually saying something out loud, it releases the power those thoughts and those words have mm -hmm. over you and how you live your day. You look to me like somebody who embodies that. It's a work in progress every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're courageous. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. I want to talk about gender. Hang uh, on, Dana. Before you say that, you know what I like about the, your, your courage though, is you're courageous, not just in your strength, but in your emotions. I mean, you're one of the most compelling, strongest, um, women that I've seen speak and storytell and litigate. And, you know, you're also very free and courageous with your emotions, which I think is very impactful and compelling as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is something else about that, Carrie, don't you agree? Um, you could be distracting in a way that Carrie and I can also be distracting because mm -hmm. we kind of look like ornaments. Sometimes there's a lot of flash and hair and <laughs> material. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Hi. I just blend into the background. No, 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 no. <laughs> Bitch, look at the molasses, please. <laughs> Get a close-up. Get a close-up. She's ready for her close-up, Mr. Camille. The blue eyes and the lashes. We're not fooled by you. Don't start girl. with me. Don't start with me, Pensacola. That's that, that Pensacola sly. They mm -hmm. act mm -hmm. uh, We're cocky as hell. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I forgot what we were going because we could already talk about her mesmerizing green eyes. I don't, I don't you were going to go into gender. You were going to ask about gender. I wanted to ask about gender. I want to ask your experience because in my view, uh, I ask people to not make it relevant if it's not relevant. And there are so many things that we go through our lives believing are gender relevant that are not. They are not. Uh, I use an example uh, in, in my book about uh, drinking. Mm -hmm. If you look at drinking among women, it's through the roof. Uh, and I do believe that has to do with stress. People drink to lighten their load, to be a little less. There's nothing gender based about that. We just assumed that men needed to drink when they came home in a peaceful, quiet home with the kids yeah. bathed and put it, you know, whatever. So he can come home, have a couple of minutes, don't talk to him, let him read his paper, let him have a cocktail, whatever. And then just, you know, how was your day, darling? And it's because of how we envision stress and responsibility. And then now we know in reality, um, women have got a lot on their plates other than, you know, bake sale, getting kids cleaned up, you know, making sure their permission slips are signed, stuff like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that when you look at most families and most gender role um, uh, 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 responsibilities, you'll see women doing a lot of things that were traditionally male, but they're also doing the same things that have always been traditionally female. So right. that's one of those things that we always think gender is related to stress or drinking. No, it's not. It's not. It, it, it's everybody has stress. Everybody wants to relieve it. Um, so I, I ask people all the time, especially women, I said, if you have one of these clickers, you know, you can go around and click every time you saw something, click how many times you show deference to a man for no other reason than his gender. No other reason than you know that that guy, if I don't make a big deal out of him holding the door for me, he's going to think I'm a dick. Or this guy who um, is so surprised that you can be 
you know, smart and funny and pretty and be, you know, almost all of those kinds of things we do all day long where we're like, oh, don't ever emasculate a man. Don't ever speak over him, you know, show him this deference. I do it. And I consider myself pretty woke from a feminist perspective, but I know that I do it. But I want to know how you particularly do it, because when you show up and you give your presentation, you don't try to put on what we want women to look like as your presentation. You show up as you and everybody can focus on what you have to say. That's a that's a superpower. So let's talk about gender. Uh, yeah, gender is wild. <laughs> um, it's I think the hardest thing for, for women in general is I don't know that it's overcoming it's what we've been conditioned to do. Life is a habit, right? And, and our habit is that we praise the men who are providing for us because that's what our fathers did. That's what their fathers did. That's what, and so we're just in this habit of, of building men up and not building ourselves up because we didn't, right? Women who talked about what they did were braggadocious or they were like, there was just something wrong with them. So we just flip the script and make a new habit, right? So my habit is I'm, I'm not going to build someone up who's not going to build me up. Right. right? Um, unless, unless I'm playing a game and, and I know that going in, right? Like if I want to see like, all right, all right. Is, how, how big can I make him smile today if I kiss his ass? So, right. But I know going into that, I'm doing this to have fun for right. me. Right. And I, I just, I just want to see how narcissistic he is today. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I don't do it for, for any other reason. I will though do it when it's, it's a trick. It's a tool you have. Let me tell you, Mark O'Mara, is yeah. the only man who has ever asked me what my preferred pronouns are. How and he did it like not that long ago, right? We were just having a conversation and he says, hey, he says, I just want to stop. I, I want to be respectful. What pronouns do you prefer? Right. And that was just a moment for me. I was like, whoa, who are you? Right. Well, tell so, people who he is now. I mean, he's an important oh, lawyer. Wow. What he's famous for. Mark Amaris is an absolute phenomenal trial attorney in, in Orlando. Uh, the George Zimmerman case. I mean, countless other cases. I, I stalk him like a, a fan I guess. Um, because I am a fan. Um, so it, he, but for him to be, you know, so human and so real. And the reason I give that example is because he is someone that I have no problem being respectful and praising it because he's a genuine human being. So I don't think it should be like women versus men about, I'm not going to give you this or give you that. No, it's, it's about souls. Yeah. If you got a good soul and I got a good soul, we're going to vibe. Yeah. If I got a good soul and you have a soul that makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm going to be on guard and you're going to get what you get and you better just deal with it. Yeah. So um, for me, it's about honoring myself it, where I feel safe. And if I don't feel safe in a place, I'm not going to be there long. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to gender and things like that, one of the things that I would say, be careful with, you know, we're, we're constantly asked, you know, bring somebody to the table, help us get the women numbers up, help us do this. And, and I responded one time, I said, I don't invite people to places where they're not going to be safe. I don't, I don't ask my friends to come to places. So change your culture Thank and you. I'll invite them. Thank you. Like Otherwise this, I'm not doing it. I, I don't want to uh, call anybody out, but there's um, organizations that I've been involved in the past that will offer like you know, women's caucuses. And to me, that's like the kid table at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. It's like, you get your own little place and we'll have cooking shows for you. And maybe we'll have jewelry and, and some fashion in the uh, lobby outside of your CLE. You know, we'll have a makeup person go there or whatever, which no, don't misunderstand me. Clearly I avail myself of things like that. 
but <laughs> to assume that that is a priority item or that I need to hear about it when I'm in a professional conference is uh, insulting to me. Yeah. I've, I've commented on that with several of them. Um, but to me, I, I always ask myself, uh, what do you get for it? So when I find myself sustaining these cultural norms, so I'm like, well, what do I get for it? Because it's not serving me. If it's not serving you, then it's not my job to not, you know, to, to make sure you're not uncomfortable. So that, that's just the way I look at that. The more we practice that, the better we are. And we were talking about that this morning at, at the, um, the, the annual conference in, in Palm Beach. And is that the over apologizing for everything? And I'm like, stop, it, it's a habit. So tell your friends like, hey, I'm a person who over apologizes. So every time I'm saying I'm sorry and I shouldn't raise your hand, I'll go back and I'll redo the sentence. I'm just gonna break the habit, right? But get your family and your friends involved. And then when you write your emails, if you lead with it, take it out, yeah. you know, and yeah. um, just little things that we can do to correct our language, to empower ourselves. And every single day that we do something like that to show up for ourselves, then we build up to the courage to have those moments where somebody tells the inappropriate joke and we can say, Hey, what did you mean by that? Yeah. Because yeah. courage is a habit. And um, the more we practice showing up for ourselves and, and for others, the more courageous we get as we go through it. Um, you're 100%. I think those are, are great things to, to practice. And the tricky thing about gender to me is that when we allow ourselves to be defined by societal norms and by people's expectations, um, then we measure ourselves by how we meet those norms and expectations. Yeah. And that breeds perfectionism in a way that that's so unhealthy, right? So if I were to measure myself by societal norms of a mom, like, I don't listen, no. It's all the kids in my house. We are a unit and we are a team. That means like Justin, you're on dishes. Gage, you're on trash. Somebody's mowing the lawn, right? I got to work. We need to get this together. If you want me to cook dinner, that means y'all need to do the laundry because I'm not doing both. Right. Like that, that's just like, those are the real conversations. I mean, I'm not at my house trying to do all of it all the time. Um, so, you know, just redefining those roles and, and what makes sense for us and, and stop trying to meet other people's expectations, right? If, if you're the parent who wants to craft with your kids, then craft. But if you're the parent who wants to take them and, and show them your corner office where you're a badass, like, lawyer, then take them and do that and buy cookies from Publix, right? <laughs> exactly. <great> <laughs> That's 100%. But pick uh, your perfect. The, the reason we go wrong with, you know, trying to be perfect and, and chasing, you know, gender issues and things like that is because we're, we're trying to measure ourselves by societal norms instead of yeah. picking the, the things that matter to us. Yeah, that's what you got to do. You've got to understand that it's your position. Mm -hmm. You get to choose what perfectionism is, because so many of us chase perfectionism by other definitions. And then when we achieve it, it's not gratifying. And you're not appreciated like you thought you would be. Mm -hmm. You're like, look, bitch, I perform miracles here. I've got 18,000 balls in the, the air. These kids are doing good. They're not embarrassing the family. They're in school. I'm balling. I'm doing these things at work. I'm winning trials. You're doing great. Nobody's um, you know, wearing dirty clothes. I got this. You know, mm -hmm. and then they're just take it for granted and just like, oh, this is your job. This is what you do, whatever. And you're like, well, I'm killing myself to do something. You've got to stop doing that. You know, it's not rational. I always tell people all the time, if you could just be a rational person instead of an emotional person, because there's nothing rational about, you know, continuing to be on this treadmill and chasing this thing that is not gratifying to you. You don't even value it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even value it with our careers, right? Like there's always going to be somebody with more money 
there's always going to be somebody trying a bigger case or a different something, or it's in the news longer, or you have to get very serious about like, what do you want out of your career? You know, do I want to win the most trials or try the biggest cases or, or do, if you want that, then great, do that. Align your life and your values to go after that. Perfect. Right. But then don't say that the thing that you want more than anything is to be a stay at home mom, because like, that's not true. And there's nothing wrong with, I want to have kids and a family, but I also want to chase this thing over here. Everything has seasons and times. And if we're honest about what we want, then I, I think it makes all the difference in the world. If you ask me what I was you know, five years ago, what is it a trial lawyer? If you ask me what I am today, I'm, I'm a mom, right? I've, I've got people who need um, love and support. And, and it's just where I am. If you ask me next year, it may be different, right? But just embrace the, the seasons. You know, it's funny because I just came back from Belize. I go to this women's retreat and one of our, uh, and we're all kind of about the same age. And our, our task right now is, is to decide what do we want to experiment with and what do we want to experience in the next season of our lives? And that sounds very simple. But when you think about it and you realize, okay, I'm freeing myself to take some chances to have a life I never even envisioned. That's the experience, experiment part. Experience is what do I want to actually go through? Because I'm, I'm the person I am now because of all the experiences I've had. Mm-hmm. Fantastic person because I've gone through all these kinds of things that's going to make me better. So it's just going into your life, the future, the unknown, with an idea that this is going to be something that enriches me, that I learn from, that is going to make my life better, and I'm liberated and free to take chances. You 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 embody that sort of mentality uh, to me, and I, I was just so excited that you agreed to be our guest, and I want you to come back stronger. But that's another discussion for our producer. Yeah, for sure offline. So but, um, in all honesty, yeah. though, the, the things that, that make me good at what I do also make me not a great partner at times. Right. So, um, yeah. because I, I am so very independent and I, I want things done the way that I want them done because I've gone through all these things. I've done the work. I've done what I needed to do. This is just what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to check myself. Right. And, and I have to, to think about how I want to, um, build trust with, with my partner in, in allowing her to make decisions that I would ordinarily want to make, or think that I should make, or things that I want to control. Because when things are not, um, the way that, that they should be in my mind, then if I'm not careful, I revert back to thinking, okay, this is the chaos for my childhood, right? This is the trauma from life. So there are just things, even when we look like we have it all together, it's only because we're doing the work every day. And, and I want people to understand that. Like it's, it's not like you do the work and then you're just empowered and like gravy train. It's you do the work and you're empowered and you keep it up. It's like working out and exercising. If you don't maintain it, you lose it. Yeah. You can't, um, you can't just exercise a lot for a week and bank it for three months. It's not how it works. Right. Yeah. Um, Betsy, uh, we're going to do our last little go around before we close today. There's so many things we can cover, but just get in, get in this conversation. What do you think and what do you want to hear about? Well, I was just reflecting on uh, the, the thoughts about Julie and the conversation about Julie. And I thought about um, when she passed in 2010 and how far things have come in terms of LGBTQ rights and, and abilities to live as a family and, and have that re- be recognized and Pride Month and all these other things. Do you ever think back on you know how she might feel if she were here now? Would she feel differently or was it uh, just so deep within her? So I had 
really hopeful uh, up until the last two years. Um, you know, prior to that, I, I looked back and I was like, wow, like if, if she had only lived to see this part, right? Like how cool would it be? And, and you have to recognize, so like at this point I am, I have a partner um, and, and she's also an attorney. So I, I see it through the lens of, I, I don't allow myself to um, fantasize about a relationship that doesn't exist anymore. Right. But I do allow myself to think about, because when I think about Julie, what I think about is that the world is missing her presence. Not that I am missing my partner because I have a partner. And it's very important to keep that separate. I miss her presence and the gift of, of just like unconditional love to, to people in general. Um, and, and so I do some, like I mourn for the world and that, you know, kids who are in school don't have her as a teacher. Yeah. Um, and, and things like that. And I had up until about two years ago felt like, wow, if, if she were here, like this would feel so liberating to her and maybe it would give her the, the courage to live authentically. Um, but then with the, you know, things happening in, in Florida and in Texas and, and around the country, when you have, you know, 31 people, um, attending a, a pride parade for no other reason other than to, to cause, um, injury and riot. And when you have pastors, um, preaching online about how people of, of the LGBTQ community should be uh, killed and, and put to death, right? Because of that's their belief. And because when you have, you know, the, we have a, a 10 year old now, so we can't talk about the fact that, that there are two women raising him at school potentially, right? With, with the legislation in Florida. So I feel like we're under constant attack. Um, for being seen and being valued, which then makes me want to double down and, and be seen even more because like, cool, take it. Tell them that they can't talk about it in school, right? They're going to talk about it anyway. They're going to do it anyway, right? Tell us that, that we can't marry or we can't do this. We're going to do it anyway. Like right. we're not going to stop. Right. Um, but it makes you a, a little angry and, and defiant. So, um, so short answer. Yes. I, I had um, thought that, that things were better. And then recently um, very sad about the hate in people. Um, same here, same here. Yeah, me too. I just think to myself, I thought we were so far beyond this. Me too. Yes. We had made so much progress. Yeah, we, had, we were doing so well. Yep. Yeah. And, I, and I'm almost, I'm not in a fugue state, but I'm not like burning down the house. I'm like, okay, I've got to stay calm. Mm -hmm. I've got to look at the resources. I've got to, you know, react intelligently and calmly to this threat. I can't, you know, rioting in the streets, just not getting anybody anywhere. We've got to do some other things, but I get what you're saying. It just feels like, you know, we were going so great. And then all of a sudden it's like, where the hell are we? You know, what the hell just happened here? And um, it, it's hard and it's hard not to retreat and just say, well, mm -hmm. I'm okay. I got money. My kid will have anything she needs. Um, it's real easy to to enjoy that privilege that you have worked so hard to earn, even though you don't have as much as others do. But you are a, yeah. a brilliant person, and you have a, a mastery of something that can level any playing field in this country, and that's the law. So uh, you use that masterfully. Um, Carrie, let's finish up with you and your final questions and comments for our guest, Julia Metz, today. All right. Well, Julia, I want to switch gears with you real quick. Um, you're such an impressive trial lawyer and you're such an even more impressive storyteller. So my question for you really is where, where do you learn how to be such a good storyteller? Is there somewhere that 
are there books people watching can read or that we can read? Like, you know, as travelers, we're always trying to be better storytellers and you're one of the best. So what, what are your like top three recommendations with respect to how to become the best storyteller? Um, well, if you're friends with Dana and you're listening to this, just call me and I'll teach you. Right. Like how about that? Step one. Um, step two is, is to be common sense. Think about it. Right. We can't learn to tell stories by reading books, right? We have to learn to tell stories by telling stories. And I, I think the best way to do that is kids, right? Show up to elementary schools and read to them and then identify the characters in different voices, right? So practice inflection and practice emotion and practice pauses with an audience that's going to love you if you snot all over yourself. They're going to be like, oh, that must have been on purpose. <laughs> so you're going to get nothing but positive feedback for your storytelling. So you're first going to develop the skill of just being comfortable with playing with voices, comfortable with playing with tones and tempos and facial expressions and things like that. Then once you have some, some comfort with that, then we bring it back, we plug it into some skills and that's just organization and structure. How do I tell the story in the most compelling way? Do I need to do a flashback? Do I need to do chronological so that the jury follows along? Do I need to do chronological with logical buckets so they know where to put the information, right? So once I know how to tell a story, then I just need to give the story some structure. Um, but again, I think the easiest thing to do is to start by, by reading books to kids and playing with being alive in a story. Because when you're in a trial, that's really what you're doing. We have accepted the, the privilege of representing people and we get to tell their story. Yeah. And, and the great thing is, is like we get to write it for them too, right? So we get to experience with them. We get to write it and we get to tell it. And when you're reading books to children, you really get into this idea like I need to make you feel the words on this page. When you're advocating in front of the jury, I need to get them to feel what this person experienced. Yeah. And I can do it in so many ways. Um, so if, oh, and you guys, so trial school, sign up for trial school because yeah. we do tons of free advocacy training and, and all of that stuff on there. I'm trying to think of, of good books for storytelling. Mm. The trial school is good. I've done that. That's really yeah. helpful, especially when they videotape you when you're telling your story. Oh, and, so you know, with me, I wave my hands all around. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a Mel piece of advice for you though. On the, sure. on the, on the book thing. Um, this is a really neat experience. I just went through my boys are 15 and 17. So I'm transitioning their rooms from little boy rooms to big boy rooms. <laughs> and I've kept all of their childhood books, most of which many of which are my childhood books. And it's so cool to sit there and open them up now and start to read the books to them now, even mm -hmm. though they're little kid books, they remember them. They oh, remember oh, my tone of voice. They remember my inflection. And so like, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. They're still laughing about it. So anybody that's listening, save those childhood books yeah. because mm -hmm. it's so cool when they're older. Yeah. Wendy has one that, what was that Dr. Seuss book? You're not my mother. You're not my mother. <laughs> You're a stuff. You're a snuff. And I'd had this over the top dramatic. You're not my mother. Get real. Yeah. Oh, it's so fun. You know, the, those are the memories you make and you think your kids don't remember. And believe me, uh, for all of you women who are killing yourself to be super moms, they actually don't remember a lot of the detail. They actually don't remember that you didn't go to sleep until three o'clock in the morning doing for something for them one time. So stop killing yourself and maybe enjoy those smaller moments as they come because they do not have a checklist. That they're going, okay, my bed was made every day. I had Pottery Barm. I had da 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 da, da. She was an A-plus mom. No, they remember the voice you used when you said, you're not my mother. That's yeah. Right. So, exactly. I, I tell you, this has been such a treat for me to spend some more time with you, Julia Metz. And, and I hope 
I know I will see you. We will all see you at some of these uh, lawyer meetings. She is a preeminent trial lawyer, but she also teaches other trial lawyers how to be trial lawyers. And that's uh, the background on this amazing person that we shared everything else about today. But she is a lawyer. She has a job. So uh, thank you for coming with us. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Betsy. And thank you all of our listeners again for another episode of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plant by Basic Brooks Law Offices. And you can reach out to us to get the contact information for Julia Metz. She is with the trial school. She is also associated with the Levin Papantonio Law Firm that we also do a lot of business with. Great firm uh, in Northwest Florida, Pensacola. Uh, so thank you again. Thank you all of our uh, watchers and listeners and thank you for our panel members. We will see you next week at 4.30 Thursday, Facebook Live on the <laughs>